0: day, and during this time we've been focusing on letting go with regard to form, with regard to the body in particular, but of course form includes all material things. And in meditation, focusing on the body in its true nature, it's a collection of anatomical parts being made up of the four elements and being impermanent. And I thought as a way to kind of close off that piece of our, of our work together and we actually share something from the Pope's encyclical that recently came out. I don't know if you are uh, tuned into um, to that part of what's going on in the world, but Pope Francis recently, and the Vatican recently, released an encyclical or, or teaching that really very beautifully lays out the, the situation we have in primarily focusing on environmental issues and social justice issues. There are two paragraphs here that I think are really pertinent to this whole practice of letting go, and especially letting go of the material, and how that can lead to greater fulfillment and a more beautiful life. This is the the great benefit, of course, of letting go, letting go of attachment, letting go of clinging, that we become more and more free. So I think it's really interesting and quite lovely that it's not only in Buddhism, of course, So this begins by saying Christian spirituality, and it's actually very Buddhist, I believe, proposes an alternative understanding of the quality of life and encourages a prophetic and contemplative lifestyle, one capable of deep enjoyment free of the obsession with consumption, we need to take up an ancient lesson. The conviction that less is more. A constant flood of new consumer goods can baffle the heart and prevent us from cherishing each thing in each moment. To be serenely present to each reality. Sounds kind of Buddhist, doesn't it? However small it may be, opens us to much greater horizons of understanding and personal fulfillment. Christian spirituality proposes a growth marked by moderation and the capacity to be happy with little. It's a return to that simplicity which allows us to stop and appreciate the small things, to be grateful for the opportunities which life affords us, to be spiritually detached from what we possess, and not to succumb to sadness for what we lack. This implies avoiding the dynamic of dominion and the mere accumulation of pleasures. Such sobriety when lived freely and consciously is liberating. It's not a lesser life or one lived with less intensity. On the contrary, it's a way of living life to the full. In reality, those who enjoy more and live better each moment are those who have given up dipping here and there, always on the lookout for what they do not have. They experience what it means to appreciate each person and each thing, learning familiarity with the simplest things, and how to enjoy them. So they're able to shed unsatisfied needs, reducing their obsessiveness and weariness. Even living on little, they can live a lot. Above all, they cultivate other pleasures and find satisfaction in fraternal encounters, in service, in developing their gifts, in music and art, in contact with nature, in prayer. Happiness means knowing how to limit some needs which only diminish us and being open to the many different possibilities which life can offer. How's that feel? You can imagine a whole range of possibilities. I know for me I, I I read it with a Buddhist lens, of course, I and mean, I hear the Buddha talking about how wonderful it is to have few wishes. That real freedom isn't the freedom to get what we want, but to be free from wanting. You may not know this, but my name, Santhusikha, means contentment. And I did not pick it. It was given to me. But you know they give you these names that are aspirations, something that lingers in your consciousness. And it's a beautiful practice. You know, at any moment I can ask, am I, am I content? And often the answer is no. Because the mind is rushing out to get something. To want something to be different. But at least then there's that opportunity to notice. And to be present with that reality. Well, this is how it feels now. Now what do I want to do with that? So we've talked about the body and material form, and now we're going to move on into feeling. Because so much, in my experience, and I I don't think I'm alone in this, so much of craving and clinging and sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair come out of feeling. So feeling being the second heap that the Buddha talked about. We get a chance now for this next 24 hours to really explore feeling. Now in the traditional sense, in the sense of the aggregates, the Buddha boiled it down to feeling pleasant feeling, painful feeling, and feeling that's neutral or neither pleasant nor painful. But as even the Buddha said that you can't really quite tease apart these five heaps, as we explore it, for our purposes, I want to move into a more complicated feeling as well. That really probably belongs in the fourth aggregate, mental formations, mostly. But these mental aggregates are so connected. They're really intertwined. So for our purposes of really getting how feeling drives us and want we'll also include emotion. And, and really take a look at how we can master feeling. Not that we can decide how we feel all the time, but that we can know how to work with what we feel in a way that it isn't the primary driving force for what we say and do. But it's actually a source of information and we can see it for the way it is. The Buddha used similes to talk about the aggregates and the simile that he used for material form which includes the body is a lump of foam. And today I walked for a little while out by the water and as I turned to come back I saw this foam that I had collected on, on the shore. The, the Buddha said, if, if you look at foam, you know, it can look, from the distance, it can look like it's actual something. <laughs> but when you examine it closely, not much there. It's just foam. It's just so easily fall apart disintegrate. He said that's the way the body is. That's the way material form is. Now with feeling, he said the feeling is like the bubbles that are created on the water during a hard rain. And he said in the rainy season when the rain comes down really hard and hits the water, it creates a bubble. Have you ever seen that? and then it breaks, just like that. So that's what healing feeling is. It comes quickly, but it goes quickly. Completely unsubstantial. Not to get too caught up in But if you're like me, then... You know, I'll just talk about me. I'll leave you to you. <laughs> In my life, I feel like feeling has really driven so much of my speech and action. I mean, there was a a long period in my life when I felt like, you know, to really be truthful, I needed to express what I feel. Boy, was that a problem. (laughs) It caused a lot of trouble. And then when I went into the Buddhist teachings and I started to realize that feel, feeling is not all that reliable. Not all that meaningful. I mean, we can learn amount from it and it gives us indicators of what needs to be healed, what needs to be better understood, that lies behind the feeling. But um, to take it as truth and spread it around, Try to get people to accommodate you over it. It doesn't really work. (laughs) So it's great to to at least get that far. (laughs) So I've been really interested in how to work with healing. And I want to introduce a couple of books, actually, and the tools that they describe and recommend. Because when, when we're working with strong feeling, whether that feeling is fear or anger or longing or whatever, whatever it is, then it's, it's like, how can I understand what really lies behind this? Where is the queen? And the way I look at this is by using the Four Noble Truths as the template. Of course, this is the fundamental teaching that the Buddha gave. It's something he realized on the night of his awakening and came back to it over and over and over again. And the four truths are not always presented in the way that he presented them himself in the beginning. So we want to be clear about what we're talking about and the way that they are formed and described in the Pali Canon is that the first noble truth is that there is suffering. It wasn't life is suffering, it wasn't that a human needs suffering, it means there is suffering. So, in this present moment, if there is suffering in life. Is something we recognize as suffering. And there are moments of pleasure and moments of happiness. And then, of course, we can look behind those and see that suffering comes along with that in some sense. But it wasn't to say that everything is suffering. When there's suffering, then it's important he said, to know that suffering and to understand it, to understand that suffering. That's what we must do with it. And then the third part is realizing that that suffering is understood. So for each of the noble truths in the description, in the Dhamma Chakravatana Sutta, the first sermon the Buddha gave, each of the truths, he has three parts. So that first one is there's suffering, what do you do with it? You need to know it, come to understand it, and then realize that it's known, that it's understood. And then the second noble truth is that there's a cause for this suffering. And what we should do with that cause is to abandon it. And what we realize then is that it has been abandoned. When it's abandoned, we know what's been abandoned. And the cause, oftentimes we can can just say that cause is attachment. But I've found that that's not so helpful. It's too glib. It's like, I can say that, yeah, obviously I'm suffering because I'm attached. But saying that, doesn't really help me let go. It needs to be much more directly experienced than that. It needs to be much more precisely identified than that in order for me to let it go. And then the third noble truth is that there's cessation of suffering. So when we abandon the cause, the suffering ends. And the Buddha said that must be experienced. To experience the relief, the release, the relief, the end of that suffering. And to realize that it's ended. And then the fourth Noble Truth, of course, is the Noble Eightfold Path. Practicing each piece of that, developing each piece of that is important to be able to put it into suffering. But I find that it's also necessary to practice those first three. And we need to actualize those. And it's not so easy to know how to do that. But my experience in working with feeling is that we can actually apply a method that helps to actualize those first three noble truths. And my search in this started back in the 1990s, and I was in seminary, I was in interfaith seminary training for four years, and part of what we were taught, we were taught many things, to become a minister, you know, there's a whole range of skills you need to develop, But part of what we were taught was how to guide people through a process called focusing. Is anyone familiar? I see one, two, three, four. Okay, this is Eugene Gendlin's little book. I actually haven't looked if it's still in print. I don't know if anybody knows, but it is called focusing. And Eugene Gendlin was a student of Carl Rogers, psychologist. Purpose. I never know what those distinctions are, so forgive me, but he talks about how, in their research, they were really curious about why psychotherapy wasn't more effective than it is. Why is it that people didn't see positive results as often as they would have liked? And in the process of investigating that, they were videotaping People in their first sessions of psychotherapy. And they started to be able to identify that some people did certain things in the session that would lead to good results in psychotherapy. They said they could identify exactly what to look for on the videotapes. And even a graduate student who's taught what to look for could accurately predict which people from the first or second session with a psychotherapist would have good results. And he said what they learned that some people naturally did, and he said this was was kind of a blow, because you know, you think as a psychotherapist, it's my skill, or something, he said he wanted to believe it was his skill that brought people along, but when they started to see that there were specific Ways that people related or really related to what they were experiencing, what they were feeling, made the difference in their progress. So, in this book, he lays out this process, and what it basically is is what I believe the Buddha taught about how to be with our felt experience. The Buddha said, everything we need to know we can learn is to have a long body. This process that Eugene Gillen and his team identified is being able to locate our mental feeling in the body. So like when you feel anger, you feel it somewhere, you feel it in your chest, or you feel it in your stomach, or when it's grief, sadness, fear. And the idea is to find where this is presenting itself in your body and observe that feeling. So today I reread the steps that he gave in focusing, because I haven't I read this book in a long time. And it was it's interesting because he's describing mindfulness. Mindfulness of feeling, And mindfulness is, you know, you have the strong emotion, And it presents itself somewhere in your body. And then you stay present with that. And in all capital letters in a couple of places, don't go into the feeling. Well, it's mindfulness. You You stand in awareness of it, without judgment of it. You're not trying to change it. You're not trying to get rid of it right off the bat. You're just being present with it. And this, I believe, is what the Buddha meant by knowing Suffering. We're watching it, we're observing it, we're being present with it. Now, that also makes it possible for that feeling, or we call it a felt sense of the body, to transform. It changes. A bubble on the water, it changes. And as it changes, there can be this growing understanding of what its root is. So I found this system of focusing useful, and actually in the ministry school we were taught how to guide people through it. And what you generally found was that you'd help people focus, focus on this feeling and be present with it and observe its changes. And sometimes there would be a felt shift Sometimes there'd be a kind of release or a relief because you're observing this changing experience. And maybe there's some kind of new perspective. But I wasn't all that satisfied with it because it seemed really hidden in its results. So, a couple of years later I found another system in a book called Undefended Love. And the, the material surrounding it now uh, coming from a perspective of Buddhist training, I'm not so impressed by. But I worked with one of the authors of the book, who was a psychotherapist, who was able to guide me through this process that they had identified. And in their process is very similar. You're working with the feelings in the body. An emotional presentation of feeling in the body, but they had a series of questions that you would ask that would bring you more down into what's behind this feeling. Why am I reacting this way? Why, when my coworker says this, I have this reaction? Okay? And you can go through this with talk therapy and be swirling in it for a very long time. But if you go to this feeling in the body, and you can inquire there, sometimes there's really good results. And I think that's what Gell and his team were talking about. So with this psychotherapist, I spent about two years with meetings with her that I wouldn't call psychotherapy, but more like learning this process. And mainly learning how to not run away from what I felt. So when we're really going to be present with what we feel, it's hard. If that's a painful feeling, we don't want to be there. We want to go to the refrigerator and get something to eat. We want to turn on a movie. We want to call a friend. We want to do 150 other things but not be with this feeling. Or we want to get into that feeling. Like they said, don't do that. Get into that feeling. And then it's kind of on indulging, you might say, or it's it's a building up of the feeling. It it perpetuates and grows this experience into something catastrophic. maybe. So mindfulness has us walking, my my mental image of it is like a precipice, where on the one side you're getting sort of overwhelmed and caught up in the feeling experience, and on the other side you're running, pulling away Neither of those works in terms of unpacking what's behind it. Where's the wrong view? Where's the misunderstanding? Where's the early conditioning? Where's the habitual mental process that actually causes this reaction in me? I won't know that if I take the route of covering it over, shoving it under the rug, distracting myself, and so on or talking about it with my friends and blaming my partner and whatever else goes on on the getting overwhelmed and involved in it side. So that training with, um, her name was Marlena Lyons, she's one of the authors of that book, that training with her was very helpful because she could observe me and point out, now you're pulling away from it, now you're running away from it. And then there was a point where I started to get depressed. I was so intent upon being able to build up my mental muscle, my emotional muscle, to be able to be present with what's painful, that I started to get depressed being in that space. And when I told her that, she said, now you're clinging to that experience. Instead of just being present with it, I was clinging to it. And I saw that that was true. So it's like maintaining mindfulness. There's a kind of equanimity there. And it's easy to kind of go into different aspects of the territory that aren't helpful. But you start to realize, really, to just stand and observe and be present and inquire. So there's an investigation aspect of this and this list of questions that I had available to me to ask. Things like, when did I first feel this? When there was one particular instance where a very vivid image came to my mind from my early childhood that totally unlocked a reaction that I was having and it never came back again. And this is the kind of thing that can happen, right? Sometimes it happens in talk therapy, but if if you can get there through the felt sense, I think it's more effective. And then more recently, I found Feeding Your Demons by Lama Soltramalya. How many people are familiar with this book? Not very many. Okay, this is a great book. Lama Soltram is well, obviously a Tibetan practitioner. She has a center in Colorado called the Mandala Center. And I'm not in. Authorized facilitator of this process, I'll tell you that right up front. I've never done a training, but as she mentioned, when I told her that I see this as the naturalization of the first three noble truths, she said, Oh, I hadn't thought about it that way before, but she says, Because you're a Theravada nun, (laughs) you think of it from a Theravada perspective, and so that's where I practice it from, and that's where I teach it from. and I, but I recommend very highly to read this book and to look at um, all the motivation behind it. She bases this process on an ancient Tibetan practice called Cha. That's how it's pronounced, I understand. It's C-H-O with the d And this ancient practice has us identifying what's called the demon, but it doesn't have to be a, Scary thing. It's that aspect that's needing something. It's really kind of the personification of this painful feeling. And that personification is something that is visualized through this very straightforward process. And then we have an opportunity to make our inquiry to that visualization. If you feel lost, don't worry. I'm going to go through this with you tomorrow. We're going to practice it twice. Once in the morning and once in the afternoon. And I really encourage you, sometimes people say, but I don't (laughs) visualize." I really would encourage you to come to this whole thing with a beginner's mind. And see, Because I've seen people say, I don't visualize them, and they have an experience that really helps them. And maybe it will, maybe it will, maybe you won't. But the main thing is to kind of get a sense that there are ways that we can work with the mind and with the feeling experience that can help us unlock some of that foundational material in the, in the mind that keeps us in certain patterns, that holds us in certain patterns. And those are the patterns that create our karma, that create our future. And if those are patterns that are painful, destructive, that's not the future we want, of course. So we have this this opportunity to work our way through greater and greater freedom. So before I explain, I'm going to explain what the process is so you will have an idea about it. And then like I said, when we go through it tomorrow, or for those of you who aren't going to be here tomorrow, if you get the book, it is possible to go through it on your own. It's also possible to find people who are certified practitioners that you can go to for counseling the way I did with that earlier process I mentioned, so they can help you know when you're kind of like getting off track a little bit. But what I find with this one is that it's so direct and clear that the results aren't that hit-and-miss kind of quality I've experienced previously. It's much more like laser-pointed. And I realized that, I I believe, I trust that this kind of technique isn't the only way to actualize the first three noble truths, but I think it gives us an idea of what that means. How do we practice those? How do we actually practice those? What do we do when we're triggered? So one of the things that I did when I was working with the second, the, the middle system that I told you about, was that I made a determination that I would work with the material I was experiencing every time I got triggered. So every time something came up and I had an emotional reaction to it, I would take that material, write the one line about the trigger. You'll find out right away that this is not about the stories or the circumstances. It's about our felt reaction. And that's exactly you know, what the Buddha said. He said that the problem isn't the things or the people or what happens in the world. The problem is our clinging, our attachment, our reactions to them. So you one line of what the material is, when this happened, this is what I felt. And then the inquiries around where that's out in the body, what it looks like, what it feels like, and then what is happening underneath. Okay, so I made the determination that I was going to do that for everything I got triggered on for three months. And my daughter, who was in her early 20s by then, I think, said, so what else are you going to have time for? And I found that that commitment and doing that, and of course you can't do it Right in the moment, all the time, right? i work, worked, you know. So when you're in a in a situation where you can't just you know pull off and take twenty minutes to work it out with yourself, you kind of say, okay, I get this, and I'm gonna set it aside for the moment, and then I'm gonna come back to you later. So I've got like six things stacked up on the runway when I get home from work, right? <laughs> but that's okay because you start to get at being able to go deep into what's behind this, these reactions. And I learned that I didn't have a whole bunch of problems. It always kind of went back to one thing, the same thing. And in my case, that same thing was some sense that I'm not good enough And one of the things I learned in this is that I'm not the only one who feels like that. We may have different words or a different concept, but there's some kind of idea that there's something lacking deep down in there. And basically from the perspective of what I see in the Buddhist teachings, that's exactly the wrong view that gets us into a whole lot of suffering. Because we want something, we want to get rid of something. Why? Because we feel like there's something that's not right inside. Once that's resolved, we're we? There's no more greed, no more desire, no more needing, no more aversion, no more pushing away, and no more delusion or misunderstanding about reality. That's awakening. That's the Buddha's definition of enlightenment. Peace. The highest happiness, he said. And he also said the training is gradual. So we discover what's behind this feeling reaction and then we start to resolve things. And you can you can experience the freedom happening. And you can also experience the development of the skill to be able to go in there with that emotional experience. So I'll just give you an example. I might give you two examples. This happened when I was still married, and um, my husband had taken my wet clothes out of the washing machine and put them on top of the dryer, and when I saw that, I was livid. <laughs> and in the past, I would have told him off, you know, but I didn't. I just sat down and I started to do the process. It wasn't the feeding your demons process, it was the one before that. And I, I wrote, Okay, when when I saw the clothes on top of the dryer, <laughs> this is what I felt. This is where I feel felt it in the body, and this is what color it has and this is how big it is, and this is its texture, and this is its you know, and I'm being present with it and I'm asking questions about it. And I came to this question that was like, When did I what's my recollection of the first time I felt that feeling? Now this kind of conglomeration of feeling in the body isn't so easy to name. And in the focusing book they talk about, it's like all that. It's more, You can feel the, the stuff around it more than you can describe the stuff around it. But it's that. That. And this image came that was so clear of being about four years old and being probably scolded a little bit, scolded by my mother for getting my good clothes dirty. And it was totally related to this idea that the clean clothes are on top of the dryer, which is always dusty, which is going to make me dirty. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that this is what was behind it. And who knows, you know, I mean, I, I spent quite a long time blaming my parents for just about everything. and. and now I know. <laughs> Not really, Anyhow, you know, I don't even know if she actually scolded me, but that's how I took it. Right? And in that, I just cried. Crying. Because it, it was like that. there was something shifted in the body that caused this huge shift in my psyche. And right at that moment, my husband walked in and he's like, heart and it's wrong <laughs> <But> it's okay <laughs> and, and there were many other times when you know just take my emotional experience out for a walk talk to myself about it and then come back completely in a changed space so like I didn't have to tell him, tell him. I, there was actually absolutely no anger left you know, it's it's a complete shift. And now with feeding the humans, the process is very interesting because you start out working with the same, you know, like feeling that place in your body where this intense feeling is. Identifying characteristics about it, its color, its shape, its texture. That whole thing. And then you invite that to show up as a being with arms and legs and a face. And you just see what comes out of your unconscious. And, and Lama Sultran says, and sometimes people will say, but I feel like I'm just making this up. And she says, well, that's because you are making this up. <laughs> and that's OK. You just let the image arise out of your intuition. And sometimes it's really surprising what that is. And then in this case, the way we, we generally do it is you have two mats or two chairs or something, and you let that being sit over there on the other side, and you see it in your mind eye, and you ask it three questions. You ask it, what do you want from? And that one is the superficial one. I usually think about angry teenagers when I think about these three questions. You know, like, I don't know if any of you have had teenagers, and I don't know if any of you have had the experience of having them say, I hate you, which I have had. <laughs> and, you know, there's that that surface level feeling from the demon, which can be anything. It doesn't have to be scary or. Or that but that's surface level. And then what the second question is, what do you need from me? And if you think about an angry teenager who's just told you they hate you, and what they want is for you to feel upset, hurt, or something like that. Then what do they need from her? How do you really love your attention? Your choice. And then the third question is, how will you feel when you get what you need? And that's the one that's really key. That's the one you want to use later. And in the angry teenager example, you can imagine what they might feel when they get what they need. So you don't answer those questions. You ask them. And then you shift over to the other side and you put yourself in that. If you've been any an active, this would help, but you don't have to. But you put yourself in that demon's skin and feel what it's like on the other side. And sometimes that's really interesting. Sometimes I have felt very different than what that demon looked like. It's very interesting. And you imagine yourself. You see yourself on the other side. And you answer from that place. And that's that's letting the intuition just bring up the answers, not mental, you know, just feeling it. And when those answers come, then what you want to really pay attention to is that last one. And then go back to your own spot. Now this is where the ancient practice comes in, because the ancient practice is about Instead of fighting against what's attacking you, you feed it. And there are some great examples of very skillful people who have done that in the past. And the story about Gandhi and the British officials coming to try to shut him down and he invites him and biscuits and talks to them. When the official leaves promoting Gandhi's perspective <laughs> instead of, you know, it's that ability to feed the demon the quality that it will feel if it gets what it is. So maybe that's safety. Let's say maybe they'll feel love. And the imagery is to let the body dissolve into a nectar that is that quality, and and the demon gets to take it in, in whatever way it does. Suck, suck it up with a straw or when in it or just lap it up or just absorb it. Whatever It doesn't no matter what the imagery is. Until the demon is completely satisfied. Now, this may sound kind of out there, but what I notice about it is that there comes an understanding of where it is of feeling reaction is rooted. And like I said, you're you're working through the noble truths, actually knowing that suffering, knowing what that need is, what that what what they want from you, what they need from you, and then what they'll feel. You start to get a sense of where the lack is, where the misunderstanding is, what's the real craving about. And then through that process of feeding and realizing the boundlessness of goodness, of safety, of love, just like cultivating the limitless Drammavihara, the the limitless loving kindness, the boundless compassion, the boundless appreciative joy, the boundless equanimity. It's like that, whatever that label is, whatever that quality is, that comes not something in us, but through us it has no bound. Well. So it's possible for that aspect of ourselves to be satisfied. And you feel it. You feel it. And then you can stop there or you can continue because when your mind's eye has this demon becomes satisfying and changes. Just like in the focusing, as you stay present with your felt sense, it changes. And that shift produces something that can be an ally to you. So the idea is that the strength of our suffering is an energy. Once it's understood, once it's released from hold, or we're released from this hold, it becomes an energy that's freed for for the positive side. The more the suffering is, the more the relief is, the more the the positive feeling is, the more of an ally it can be to us. And so, however that ally presents itself, we have some questions for that. I mean, one time there was this enormous in that showed up for me. And then asking, how will you help me? How will you protect me? What will you promise me? How can I access you? Those kinds of questions. And then shifting over and becoming that whatever it is, there's the felt sense of that it's hard to describe you know, the felt sense of that. The exact embodiment of the quality of that somehow is missing, or I thought was missing. And the intuitive answers that come from that can be powerful. So here comes my second example. I was working with that process on something. It was a dynamic that's with someone I'm very close to and it's extremely painful. And whenever this dynamic would happen, this person would be would get very upset with me about something and I would just freeze. And everything that I said was not what I meant and everything I said got misunderstood. You know, and and I would just be paralyzed with this because of the incredible love I have for this person and my desire for them to be happy. And I took one of these episodes into this practice and worked with it. And the demon was this kind of like two-tone blue reptilian thing. And the ally turned out to be a plushy, pink polar bear. They say, just go with whatever comes the first thing. Don't worry about what it's like. And this polar bear, oddly enough, when I asked him the question and let the answers come up intuitively for how I'm going to help you, the answer was, I'm going to remind you of your goodness. And what hit me was that in those moments, this kind of this dynamic—that's exactly what I would lose track of: my own goodness, my own good intention. And it was—it was amazing. And it was like, wow, that's exactly where I get lost. And then when I asked, "How can I access you?" the intuitive answer was. Touch your heart. So the next time I was in the situation and it happened, I did it. And I stood in my own space and I didn't lose touch of my good intentions
1: and my responses
0: were much more solid and clear. And by the way, the reaction on the other side was wild. Because usually you change the dynamic in a relationship and it gets a whole lot worse before it gets better because you're not playing the right game anymore and it's very confusing. But then that thing didn't happen again for a long, long time. And it's never had any in previous intensity back again. And this is what I find in my own mind. When I'm able to stay present with what's going on there without indulging it, without running away from it, without going through some exit door, when I'm able to stay present with it all the way through its cycle, whether it's intense desire or it's intense fear or it's whatever it is, if you can ride it through its whole until it tails off on its own, it never has the same power over you again. Because you know, I can sit this out, I can be with this, I can even bring some compassion to it. So my experience of taking the form of the Ally, of finding a way to work with whatever this dynamic is that I'm experiencing, that's where I feel the cessation in the third noble truth. And it's one piece of the puzzle of my karmic configuration. I know that. But boy, you chip away some of those pieces and your life gets a whole lot easier. A whole lot more empowering. So that's what I'd like to share around healing. And so tomorrow, I will guide you through that process. We probably could set up with cushions or chairs facing each other if you want to. I think the physical movement does help to shift in the mind. It's also possible to do it by just staying where you are and shifting internally in the mind. But I'll leave that up to you. We'll talk about that tomorrow when we set up for it. And, um, I really would encourage and I'd be interested in hearing anyone's experiences around, not right now, but you might think about how do you live the first of noble truths? Do you have ways of making them real in your life? And I haven't come across much yet from people, but I'd love to hear about it if you feel like that's present for you. I had one friend who came to a workshop I was giving about this, and she said she shows up for every everything about the four noble truths. That's why she came in that day. And I asked her this question: So, I know you love this teaching, but how do you how do you experience this first three noble truths? How do you walk that? Walk through that? And she said, I don't. I don't have any natural way of doing that.
1: Because I think in general we just think.
0: Oh, if I practice the Noble Eightfold Path, I'll get there. And that's probably true, but we also can really benefit from working with the emotional eruptions as they happen and, and really use that. And, I, and I, really, I really trust that that's what the Buddha wanted us to do. It's like, you know, you're suffering, get yeah, that this is suffering. Come you know and understand it. Where it's rooted. And the funny part for me is it's it's never rooted in a bad place, it's rooted in in some some sad misunderstanding. And it's okay. Oh, I forgot about the last piece of the process. After you're the ally and you give the answers, then you come back to your own place and you reabsorb that ally into you. So during this process, a part of you is going over there. Sometimes when I when I invite a human to go sit over there, I can actually feel a change in my body. Now that painful stuff is not in my body. Interesting. But when you reabsorb that ally into you, and you go into the meditation, stay very long ago. Sultrum talks about ways to do journaling about this. Some people make either images, drawings, or figures that represent their allies. She talked about one person who had a shelf with all of her allies on it. <laughs> and she walked through on the way to work and she'd stick one in her pocket.
1: <laughs> because these are reminders.
0: Just like touch your heart the reminders of an aspect of ourselves that we forget. I was sharing with someone today that there's a a passage in the canon where the Buddha says, the mind is luminous. The mind is luminous. This is its natural state. The defilements are adventitious. They come in as if, by chance. So what we're doing is we're working with those defilements to expose them for what they are. They don't belong here. So, thank you for your attention.